Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unsound on Sound, the podcast where we are unsound on the subject of sound. This is episode number two. We are interviewing James O'Callaghan and discussing Sabrina Schroeder's Under Room. All capital letters. Uh, we're mostly working off of a YouTube video, so we will put a link to that in the description. And once again, while you don't have to listen to that piece, of course I can't make you, um, I think you really should. You should go watch this video on YouTube. It's really just going to make this whole experience of listening to this podcast uh, better, more meaningful, more fulfilling, more powerful. James O'Callaghan, uh, I believe he's a Montreal-based composer, though I caught up with him in New, New York City. City. We're all scattered to the winds right now during this COVID thing. We were talking in uh, late April. Uh, it's now mid-May that I'm recording this introduction. What have I been doing over the past few weeks in between? I, you know, I've been watching a lot of reality TV shows. I liked the bowed cymbal sounds they used to artificially increase tension. Uh, and I think it was a good conversation. The tone is a little different than my first conversation with with Becca, this is uh, maybe a little more academic at times, but you know what? It's my podcast, and if you don't like it, you can you can shove off. And you can also uh, please rate and review the podcast. Positive reviews. We're looking for positive reviews. So let me tell you a little bit about Sabrina Schroeder before getting into this uh, interview. She is currently an assistant professor at Simon Fraser University's Interdisciplinary School for Contemporary Arts. How cool is that? The piece that we're talking about today, uh, Under Room, is for Amplified String Quartet and Live Electronics and was written in 2018. The recording we're walking, working off of, the recording we're walking off is uh, by the Jack Quartet. And uh, once again, go watch the dang video. So we're going to hear a little bit from that, and then we're just going to get into the conversation, because we're just here to talk at you. Do you get that?
Okay, so yes, hello, I'm here with uh, James O'Callaghan, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Sabrina Schroeder's Underwood today. Uh, but first, uh, just, just to ask a bit of a personal uh, question, uh, your name is James, and uh, my name is James. Mm. Uh, do you ever find that confusing? Usually not. I, I uh, used to have a friend who uh, had an identical twin. Oh, wow. So, let's talk about this. Uh, uh, under room. Hmm. Uh, where did you first come in contact with this piece, and, and uh, what was your initial uh, reaction? Hmm. Well, to tell you the truth, um, I was prompted by your request to kind of think of a piece uh, to share. And I just like Sabrina Schroeder's work so much and have seen quite a number of pieces in concert. Um, but I took that prompt to look up something new that I hadn't heard. So I had not heard this piece before, went to her website and looked up what was there and uh, was very struck by this piece. And so my first encounter was it with it was uh, just the other week. And... Um, it was through watching a video of the premiere performance on YouTube. So I know you both have an interest in, oof, I'm forgetting the name, but those things you stick on items to make them uh, resonate. Oh yeah, transducers. And I think that's how I first came across Sabrina's work. I think somebody was probably saying to me like, hey, you do this, you know, Sabrina Schroeder. And I hadn't, um, which is fun because it was uh, nice to learned that she also comes from Vancouver, um, but we didn't really spend professional activity as a composer there in any overlapping way at the same time. Uh, and so she's back there now, but has lived for a number of years in other places, most recently Manchester. So we hadn't crossed paths until maybe a few years ago and had a chance to hear her works in concert a few times. Mm -hmm. So you grew up in Vancouver then? Uh, no, I didn't grow up in Vancouver. I grew up in a really tiny town called uh, Mount Curry. Um, it's uh, just north of Whistler uh, in British Columbia. I lived there till I was 13. Mm. And then I moved to Langley, a suburb of Vancouver, and then moved to Vancouver for one year before going to Montreal. I've never been out that side of things. Canada is, as they say, really big, but Gee whiz. I love just the, my imaginary kind of BC that I have in my head. Um, well, hold on to that image as long as you can. Never go there. No, I'm kidding. It's really nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my first thought uh, listening to this piece was they're not playing their instruments in the normal way. Yes, that's right. that seems like a very obvious point, right? Uh, yeah, you know, sure. but if somebody was to say, this yeah. is, uh, I'm going to come see a string quartet, and they see this, they would say, this is, uh, this mm -hmm. is an unusual way of playing these instruments. To me, the question is, is this piece sort of engaging with the the way of playing as a as a negative reflection of the the traditional forms of playing or is this trying to step out and kind of supplant that uh traditional modes of playing with with a with a new with a new way hmm well first off i don't think we should ascribe any kind of intention to the piece itself um but it, I think that in a way you could answer that question uh, in both ways. It's a matter of perspective. Um, but of course, yes, I find it really striking to the piece opens with um, just uh, bowing on different parts of the bodies of the instruments. And it's quite precisely indicated like which part of the instrument should be bowed. And uh, to me, um, observing that kind of thing as a as a listener as an observer particularly as an observer when you can see what's being done and not just hearing the result of it um 
is is uh, very much being made aware of the physicality of the instrument. You're reminded of the fact that it's a violin or that it's a cello in a way that you're not or very quickly stop paying attention to uh, when you listen to a traditional concert, a tra traditional string quartet, for example. Um, so it, like music is very good at transporting you to other places of thinking. It's not important to the piece for very long in traditional music that it's a violin. Um, the kind of concreteness, the objecthood of the thing isn't really a subject of the work. Um, but to me, the idea of something like an extended technique is precisely that. It's kind of reifying the object and saying like, hey, take a look at this, right? And um, some people get kind of bristly, I think, around the term extended technique. And it is, I think, really a matter of perception of like what you see the relationship between the technique and the instrument is. And so I absolutely see it as something that um, poses itself in contradistinction to the instrument and its intended construction and what it's good at doing, what it's, you know, was made to, to do. And I think that, like, we really associate that idea of extending the techniques uh, with uh, Helmut Lachenmann a lot of the time. And I think, like, looking at his idea of music concrete instrumental, like, that... Um, He's trying to take the Schaeferian principle of um, what happens in music concrete, which is an inverse of the traditional concert situation, where, of course, you know, you have um, abstract notation that is then transmitted into the concrete, then the physical object, whereas Schaeferian's music concrete was to take those concrete instances of sound and then derive abstract uh, musical values from it. And then Helmut Lachenmann comes and says, no, let's like flip it back and do, you know, <laughs> a 360 uh, on that. And so I think that if it goes through that kind of loop, then the concreteness of the object becomes really important. So it's like concrete, abstract, 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 back and um, what happens there like if you look at particularly his early works like pression for solo cello like it's written in the performance notes that the piece should be memorized or there should be no obfuscation of the um, instrument by a music stand at least it should be placed below the view right so I think that that visual that physicality is really important to that music and so that's kind of the perception that I go with uh, naturally when I encounter a piece of music like this, which you could say kind of lives in that world of extending techniques for the instruments. And so like immediately there's a kind of reification of the objecthood, a kind of like a reminder of like, hey, this is a string quartet, you know, that kind of hits your attention or it does mine when I see the beginning of this work. Yeah, the term extended technique is, there's something funny about it, right? You imagine saying, uh, now this next technique is, is very extended indeed. Or you might look at another technique and say, this is only a little extended. You'll be able to get on board with this. Which technique um, is the longest? Also, <laughs> which technique is, he's extended this technique so far it's gonna it's gonna break um i i think that who's playing is also brought in uh by the term extended technique right like mm -hmm. what is extended for a quartet that specializes in beethoven is maybe uh different than what uh jack quartet might consider extended like i remember seeing yeah, i guess it's less of a stretch Oh, <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing the uh, Botsini Quartet play, I think, uh, like a Beethoven or something. And if you think about it, in, in a certain way, you could say that mode of playing has become an extended technique based on, on what we would uh, expect from them to play. Mm. Yeah, I think that that really touches on the idea that the term is really about like a relationship between kind of a cultural concept and an object and that culture is malleable. And so depending on the context of who you are and 
what your expectations are based on, as you say, who's playing or where it's being played, what kind of series it's being programmed in. All these are kind of like little signposts that, that might tell you to view something as more or less extended, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's fun that you bring up Lock and Mon. I, I've been playing around with a concept that I was thinking about with this piece, which is sort of, for lack of a better word, I've been using the word terraforming, which is where the sort of rhetoric of traditional classical music is or is not replicated in the uh, extended techniques. Like you look at something like Lachenmann's second string quartet, the extended techniques have been treated in such a way with both the way he's writing for them and the way he's notating them that at least I feel he is searching for a way to replicate that this this unfound terrain. He's looking for a way to replicate the sort of rhetoric of uh, traditional classical music within uh, these new places on the instrument and in our ears. This piece to me is more satisfied with, and I'm sorry if um, me ascribing meaning to the piece <laughs> offends you, but I feel I just have to go with how the ideas come out most easily for me. Uh, this piece um, isn't so interested in kind of that terraforming, that recreation of the uh, rhetoric within these new sounds. Rather, it is looking to highlight these these sounds for what they are and and what they do best uh, themselves. Mm. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like pregnant pause. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I I guess that that's like just kind of a uh, philosophical debate, isn't it? Like where where do we look? I don't I don't again really feel like I know what the piece is doing and so I feel it's more meaningful and possible to talk about my perception of it um, and so I'm talking about my kind of baggage going in and the way that I look at it but um, it's certainly true that looking at it from the perspective of something that's for the sounds themselves um, is, is like a really rich way of engaging with the piece um, and a super rewarding way to engage with the work because like Sabrina often works with these very like drony structures where the sound evolves and there are so many different playing techniques in the piece uh, including live processing with electronics, extreme amplification, um, that oh, the kind of moving through that landscape of different sounds which are quite diverse from one another nonetheless happens in a way that's like very fluid and so one can find oneself drifting in a, in a, in a tension in a way such that um, the evolution of sound is so gradual that one can kind of drift off and then return to the music and find themselves in a completely different place but not uh, realize that that change had taken place. It doesn't kind of bring attention to itself in a really rhetorical, dramatic way. Um, and so I think that that kind of approach to making music or a piece like this really encourages a kind of listening that um, absolutely benefits from that kind of sonic engagement with the work. And what I think it does even more than that, um, or in addition to that, is like allows for a playfulness of listening, a kind of meditative starting point where um, it becomes rewarding to engage with the work in multiple ways. So it happened to be that when I listened to it for the first time, that was what I was really struck by, was that kind of, these are the instruments of a string quartet, and I'm looking at the objecthood and thinking about the relationship between the objects and their cultural context. Um, but then that, of course, doesn't sustain interest to me for the whole piece and then I find myself going into a sonic world and drifting back and forth between different ways of listening to the work which I think is really richly afforded by the work itself. Well, when I'm looking at this video I notice there, there's sort of two quartets, right? We have our quartet 
that is the string quartet. We have, I think, four, maybe five people on computers looking uh, a little bit like, a, like we're at a craftwork show. And their purpose is a little more obfuscated, right? We're not able to see them playing their instrument in the same way because we have four people at laptops and uh, their intervention throughout this piece is, is fairly subtle, I would say, as far as my expectations I'm bringing into live uh, electronic processing. So for me, the second quartet, the laptop quartet, is uh, it's very mysterious. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's, of course, there are kind of choices which encourage these different kinds of perspectives, right? So I think for me, like, like the way that ex extended techniques opening a piece encourages a way of listening, the um, disposition of what the environment, so what the stage is, is like, um, really encourages or you know, connects to a shared ritual that we have associated with different ways of listening and focusing our attention. So, you know, this piece takes the string quartet context of having those musicians on stage and, and it fulfills all those expectations of like, this is where your attention is focused. And that's the very frontal experience of going to a concert hall where there's a stage and the chairs are oriented in a shared direction. And so it engenders this kind of collective listening of like, we together are paying attention to this, right? And that's something we've all agreed upon for this kind of social contract that we have to go into the concert hall. But then what's so interesting is the kind of mixing of different traditions, which is, this is a piece of mixed music. So you have this kind of mix between that tradition, which is quite established, and then the more technical tradition that if you could connect it to, say, that music concrete trad tradition of Pierre Schaeffer that Lachenmann is connecting to, which is now the acousmatic music tradition, um, you know, the way that you normally experience a concert is nonetheless with this shared direction where you're all usually sitting in a row of concerts in a typical concert hall where you're all looking in one direction, but there's nothing to look at, right? Um, so you have this kind of... Sometimes you're even looking at, hmm? at one direction. Yeah. Sometimes you're even looking at one <laughs> sure, direction. right. Yeah. The holographic version, maybe, um, but but yeah. So boring on that like that cultural context. Even though there's nothing to look at on the stage, it already references that ritual. Like, okay, we all agree that we're going to focus our attention together in one way, if not one direction. And the, where the people who are doing the sound, who make the sound happen for us, thank you, people. Um, they're usually sitting at a tech table in the middle of the audience, um, especially if it's a multi-channel spatialized concert. Uh, if not, then perhaps the back of the hall. And that's very much what you see in this video, where you have the attention on stage, and then you have this like other act other actors that are helping to make the sound, but they're, they're behind the scene, right? Literally. Um, and um, so that's telling you something about the way that we should uh, engage with the work or a way that it is suggesting that one might engage with the work intentionally or knowingly or not. Um, but uh, what's doubly interesting is that then in the video documentation, they're kind of front and center, aren't they? Like you mentioned, you see in the video this other quartet, and so the camera is right there. And so it's so interesting that, you know, in one context where it makes sense to me totally to have made those different choices, that, you know, you go out uh, to a concert hall and you have this kind of illusory uh, collective listening experience. But then when it's documented on video, you know, then to kind of take a step behind the the scenes and have this dual action going on fits that medium so much better to me. And so you're made more aware of this kind of dual artifice of the listening experience, um, kind of several steps down the hall of mirrors. Um, of Adding to that hall of mirrors, Sabrina is 
as a composer herself is one of the folks at the at the computer desk I, you strike me as someone who likes to play with the dynamics of of a concert in a lot of your music um have you ever involved your role as a composer uh, into any of your compositions? Um, I guess typically in much the same way that Sabrina is in this piece, being the technician of the electronics, which is sometimes a very performative role. Um, occasionally, usually against my will, that means that I'm on stage. <laughs> if that's like a practical uh, mood that you know, whether it's to see a conductor or because there's no space in the hall otherwise or uh, these kinds of things. So that format of that distance uh, of those kind of dual stages, one that's um, behind the other one, um, is something that's very familiar to me and something that I really gravitate toward. And beyond that, I have like one piece that I initially wrote for a percussionist uh, it's a piece for Amplified Books and Electronics called Reasons. The percussionist was Ryan Packard. And then at some point I thought, hey, I could do this. Oh, wow. and their books so like I'm coming into it with the same skill level that Ryan was when he first started so I, I allowed myself the hubris of performing the work myself um, and uh, I've performed it maybe 20 times since then so I do that relatively regularly um, but uh, beyond that I don't really have a kind of performer interloper uh, hat that's interesting so you didn't start this whole composer thing uh but by, by playing an instrument then no that's so interesting that's gotta be a a rare occurrence in in the certainly in the world of contemporary music and maybe most music. yeah or from the classical tradition in general but i think it's becoming more and more common and it was relatively common to one degree or another, maybe not as clear cut, like I'd never played an instrument and then I started studying. Uh, but it's something that uh, is welcome uh, at the institution where I did my initial training, Simon Fraser University, mm -hmm. which is where Sabrina now teaches. Um, so that's a nice little connection. <laughs> but uh, I think, yeah, I wouldn't have gotten to music if like I didn't go to that school even thinking I was going to do music. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do and I kind of just fell into it. But pretty much any other school <laughs> for music um, with maybe other, a few exceptions of similarly minded schools, I think not, I, I wouldn't even have thought to try to apply. Yeah, they they uh, they probably wouldn't let you do, well, they for sure wouldn't let you do that at UNC where <laughs> yeah, I Yeah, they wouldn't let me in, even if I wanted to, so. No. But yeah, it's, it's a very interesting difference. I wonder, do you think that's affected your musical outlook in any ways when you look at the rest of us uh, uh, instrumental normies? Um, hmm. um, it's, yeah, self-analysis is such an interesting thing. I sometimes go through this kind of weird uh, doubt of that kind of process, like when I when I engage in any kind of self-analysis, like therapy or that kind of thing, or doing like a really intense look inward. Um, whereas if I come up with a, like a 
ooh, you know, because I, I didn't do this or I did this differently, I have this different perspective, you know, because I don't have a counterfactual. It feels like a kind of fake just-so story that I made up. It doesn't feel like what's really happening because <laughs> I, I can't really understand it from outside of myself. So I'm just doing what I'm doing and I accept it and have my own doubts about it and ambitions and all that kind of stuff. But um, if I play around with those ideas, I sometimes think, well, maybe because I never played an instrument or kind of grew up performing in that tradition of being on stage in the classical world, then that's one of the reasons that I'm so interested in these kinds of things, of like looking at the, these cultural codes and contexts and the ritual of stage performance. And so you're very right to say, as you did earlier, that that's something that I think about and play with a lot in my own music. So maybe that's a connection, but I don't know. Yeah, sure. I mean, all causality is uh, essentially a scam when you get right down to it. <laughs> but I still mm. think it can be fun to ask ourselves how we got where we are. For sure. And look at all my evasive answers, you, you know. Here, you're just making very clear common sense statements. And I'm like, can we take a step back and talk about the ontology of what you just said? <laughs> like, I can't just answer a question. Hey, look, it, it's all good. I, uh, I think the ontology is always, is always there for us. It's like, um, it's it's like a warm blanket, or maybe it's like the TV show Friends, you know? Uh, Netflix yeah. is full or of like, these options. And then or it's like the hug machine of Temple Grandin, which is referenced in the um, novel excerpt that is used as the program notes for this piece. Yeah, do you know anything about this, uh, this novel? Uh, no, no, I, I didn't. didn't. He's just pretending to about be modest the level about of the level of reading he's done. he's done. There's this mention of pulsation. Now, I will say there's a electronic processing effect that that is used throughout this piece where sort of the volume is to increase and decrease kind of rather rapidly, either in a steady or unsteady way. Now, I actually found in this recording that I could not make that out all the time. Quite often it sounded quite steady to me. Yeah, and I think that's one of the troubles of like engaging with this work as a video rather than something that's experienced in the concert hall, because I imagine what is really happening there in terms of uh, increasing and decreasing the amplification of the sound is less something to do with making it louder, but making it closer. Um, because the instruments are mic'd and then the speakers are presumably closer to the audience than the uh, acoustic signal is. And so I'm really thinking about that in the context of the work as, as something like that idea of sound and vibration being something that crosses physical distances to touch us. So like this idea that sound is distant touch and in the same way that idea of Temple Grandin's hug machine being a way to kind of receive this feeling of a presence of another and that tactility uh, that somehow removes through time and space uh, from that kind of source. So I think that that's probably what's happening in a concert experience of this work. And then for this recording, I don't know, like if they, for example, just took the um, like DPA mics, I think, uh, that are on the instruments and use that as the feed, in which case you wouldn't get this kind of spatial effect. but that kind of spatial effect in any case is um, not really possible to simulate as a stereo experience. Suppose you also have experience with writing music uh, that really is not necessarily suited for stereo recordings oh, yeah. and home listening. How do you think about that when your music gets put onto a kind of stereo mixdown? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the optimistic side of me, you know, likes to think of it as like this is another modality of the work, and it's something else. You know, like I'm absolutely writing concert music, which is supposed to be experience, like what I not supposed to be, but what I'm writing for is that context, right? That's how I'm thinking of the work as I'm composing it and the way that I'm engaging with it. And then when I'm 
in a situation where their work needs to exist in another way. Um, and maybe it doesn't need to, but if I want it to, uh, like as a documentation online, or like I just finished recording an album of uh, four works that were each quite theatrical and had a lot of spatial and visual elements to them. And so we just made an audio recording of it in the studio. And to me, they're like quite, that's quite a transformative act. Um, and that's a kind of like, again, on this kind of music concrete cycle that's taking the like, music concrete instrumental, if you like, and then bringing it again back to the abstract. So it's like really going back and forth here in terms of the process of the way that the work is transmitting through these different media. Um, but yeah, I like, I really like the idea of different modalities of a work. And so that's why, for example, I kind of, I have lots of works that are like different versions of each other. Like maybe one's like an acoustic transcription of an electroacoustic piece or, um, one kind of borrows elements from another and puts it in a different context, kind of self-quotation, because I like that idea of having different modalities to engage with the work. So even within a work, and that's what I'm interested in, is having the opportunity for different modalities or different ways of listening and engaging with the work, but then taking a step out to the, like, the textual level and the intertextual level of being able to engage with the work as separate from the experience of engaging with it, then those like intertextual um, modalities and playfulness between the ways that the work can exist as a text uh, is really interesting to me. And so I think that's part of why I really like program notes too. Um, I think that the more modalities, the better, you know, um, maybe not all at once. Uh, and I certainly have my favorites and least favorites, but I really like text and I like having a different way to engage with the work. And so like reading this program note, absolutely gave me uh, the opportunity to engage with the works in a lot of interesting, exciting ways that I hadn't thought of before. And so that really guided my listening as I was going through it in a way that was really satisfying. And so this idea, which I don't know, I would have made that connection anyway. Again, I have no counterfactuals, but that, that really that idea of the sound and that being so concretized by the extended techniques at the beginning of saying like, hey, here are these instruments, you're focusing your attention on the acoustic source, like where's the sound coming from? Oh, it's, you know, two violins, a viola, a cello, like you're instantly drawn to that uh, for so many reasons, because that's where the stage is, because in my opinion, the extended techniques, or at least I'm drawn. <laughs> um, and so, um, uh, that physicality is like at the forefront of my attention. So I'm thinking like acoustics and I'm thinking of objects and I'm thinking in much more like concrete terms than allowing the violin to transport me into another imaginary space. And so that idea of like vibration and physical acoustics is something that immediately is something I ponder as I'm listening to the work. And that's very much encouraged by this program note, which is talking about vibration and kind of the low tones um, in particular, because low frequencies uh, travel uh, much, uh, they're, they're wider, right? So they can travel farther because they're absorbed. They can kind of skirt their way around uh, things that diffuse sound in the space. And so looking at the piece that, you know, all the instruments have, um, there's like intense cordatura where the two lowest strings on each one, like the second string, whether that would be the D string on the violins or the G string on the uh, viola and cello, replaced with the even lower string, the, first string, uh, the fourth string. Much uh, lower. Yeah. yeah, and then both of those strings are detuned until you get this kind of flapping effect, she calls it in the performance notes, where you get like beating between them. So she's interested in, funny like connection there, the idea of flapping as something that like autistic people do to stim, and that is the kind of source um, or intended uh, both the inspiration and the intended market for Temple Grandin's Hug Machine is to get that kind of mm -hmm. stimulation of the physical tactility that uh, people on the autistic, autistic spectrum also often experience. So the idea of flapping is like a stimming, which is very much like that seeking that physicality. Uh, I see a connection there as well. So I think that, yeah, you get these really low frequencies so that you experience them more as vibration rather than as acoustic sound. 
uh, and it's something that reaches you physically because those sound waves travel in space and you're, you're touched by it. So really, again, this idea of sound being distant touch, there's a tactile dimension to this piece. And I think all of Sabrina's music that I've heard, uh, or at least certainly her more recent work and any work that involves electronics, um, there's often this focus on like really low sounds uh, and the ability for them to travel over a long time uh, through space and have that physical relationship with music. Often you have like really big subwoofers and frequencies that you feel and don't hear. Yeah, I uh, I was also very interested with these these detuned strings, specifically this element that she points to and and exploits wonderfully throughout the piece, where when the strings are played and you add pressure to it that the pitch of the strings actually changes and you get this sound that that's sort of a a low i don't know moan or wail or something but there's something to me about this idea of playing a string with more pressure until its pitch which we sometimes associate as sort of the core of a musical idea, it, it changes, right? So I really feel this this element of these changing pitches of these detuned strings to to be related in some some way to the idea of a, a hug machine. Mm -hmm. So that's my thought on that. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, I mean, for me, I would look at it less as, um, like to me, the, the word pitch has an association of like intervallic thinking. And I don't think, at least my mind doesn't go there with this piece. Um, I don't really notice or think about intervallic relations, even the interval of duration very much because it's so droning. So that's another thing about this piece and Sabrina's general style too, where um, you have that kind of, wide vantage point uh, away from intervallic uh, either whether even whether it's pitch or even events and time uh, changes things that you can pinpoint as as having those kind of relationshipy kind of um, structures that's really drawn back in a much farther vantage point so that my attention moves away from those kinds of analytical thinkings to this more complementative uh, way of listening to the work. And so I get more into thinking about frequency and thinking about the physicality of the sound, the beating and um, the sense of oscillation, which has a very spatial uh, quality for me. Mm. I think I am very aware that there's a point in this piece Oh, around the five or six minute mark where more pitched material is is sort of entered into the mix. I, yeah. Maybe it's just a question of terminology, but all I can say is I feel this is this is a significant uh, change of, of events yeah. that, that occur. Totally. And I think that... Um... Uh, you know, for me too, and the way that I look at it in terms of where my attention is drawn, that really nicely connects to that kind of the noisiness at the beginning of the piece being noise-based sounds in the sense of having a broadband spectrum where there's a lot of information across all the frequencies and then you could call it pitched later or having sounds that are closely more resembling the harmonic series uh, where you have repetition at um, mathematically proportionate uh, distances away from the sound, uh, well, a very particular proportion, uh, not like FM synthesis, different proportion. Um, but um, yeah, that I think because that distancing effect, the kind of yeah, now I'm like connecting to Brecht, the uh, distancing effect of Wolfram Dung's effect of the theater of uh, the extended technique world of saying like engage with this piece differently. You're, you're like there's an estrangement there of like that comfort zone of thinking about um, what those instruments are good at doing, which is playing pitches, um, 
is what sets things. So like to dive right into kind of pitch material in a piece like this, I think it doesn't make sense. And so that relationship of having a long period to meditate on the kind of estrangement of the instruments and that um, noise that you're hearing. And then uh, having one's attention slowly um, becoming something else uh, through that evolution into pitch. Uh, um, I guess, as you say, it's more sudden in a way. There's a point at which it kind of crosses a threshold, but I think that long duration and slow movement in the changes of the sound world give one a kind of reflective uh, attention toward those sort of things, or it does me. Um, but yeah, like I'm... In gonna... the start? Go ahead. Sorry. In the start of this piece, this looking at the score, a fair amount of rhythmic detail and uh, activity that, uh, to me, does not totally manifest itself as rhythmic information in, in the final uh, product, which is something <laughs> I often seem to also find myself ending up doing in my pieces is is this sort of what I'm looking for is a is the sense of a specific activity mm -hmm. without necessarily a, a clarity around that and I guess I was wondering what 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 do you make of sort of rhythmically specific notation in the context of uh, music that doesn't necessarily have a clear pulse or, or attacks. It's so interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah, like the way that one approaches notating such a thing. And to me here, we're getting to this kind of concrete abstract relationship again, where the score is that abstraction of musical values, whether it comes before or after the sound or somewhere in between. And, um, so that kind of platonic idea of the score being something that's removed from the physical sound, you know, it's really evident in a work like this, where, like you, I was quite surprised to um, see the score after hearing the work first and see the level of detail in it. And so that already degree of um, abstraction and removal from the context was like amplified for me, having the experience of listening to the music and then seeing this very detailed score. And uh, it amplifies also those distinctions of like um, thinking about the music in an intervallic way where those intervals are quite clear using that notation system, which is designed for an intervallic language of music, where you see time relationships like visually when you look at the score, I think very intervallically, right? And so um, just because I'm looking at physical distance and relationships between events as they happen over time, but also uh, horizontally, even if it's not to do with pitch, there's, you know, horizontal positions to do with position on the instrument, where you're bowing on them, and little graphs and things that have to do with the kind of pressure or bow position, um, and even color in this work, uh, different colors that refer to the uh, different electronic treatments or amplification. Um, and so you have these kind of modalities that uh, create an intervallic relationship in my way of engaging with the work. And so to me, too, that score experience of the work is another modality where it invites me to engage with the work in a totally different way than I would if I were listening to it or experiencing it in the concert hall. And so having an intervallic engagement, if I really studied the score, I think I would start to think about all these intervallic relationships in the piece that I don't hear um, when I'm removed from that context. So to me, that's really interesting. Then there's the kind of like it also, practical question. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it also encourages, I think, a certain form of rehearsal on the part of the performers. Yeah, and I'm thinking too that that's about the context in which the music is made. You know, it's written for the Jack Quartet who are trained in the classical tradition. This is what they know how to read. This is what they excel at. And they also are... Uh, experts at playing very detailed, complex music uh, that has a lot of information on the page that one has to process uh, in their case in a rather really quick way. Um, and so I'm sure that, that the nature of 
those being the people for whom the work was written and that relationship between Sabrina as the composer and them and the shared cultural context that they have of that way of interpreting music. Um, definitely that's kind of why the score is the way that it is, right? Um, I was just thinking you seem to, because I've gone to a few of your concerts now and read your program notes, you seem to relate in a very good faith way to the audience with your program note. It seems to me that in a James O'Callaghan program note, you're saying, to the best of my abilities, I'm going to try to tell you what I was thinking about when I wrote this piece and what I sort of think, if you think about these things, will give you the most satisfying uh, listening experience. Uh, would uh, you agree with that, or would you say this is uh, uh, misleading? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if I can put myself in people's shoes to imagine how much satisfaction they could otherwise receive had I done something else or nothing at all. But um, I, yeah, I just view that as like that's the role that I serve in this infrastructure is to um, share the way that I'm thinking about the piece and that's what people are expecting to read and that's what I'd like to talk about. Uh, the only thing I can think to talk about because those are my thoughts. <laughs> um, but I'm like, I would be delighted and often am when I hear people come up to me afterward and say like, I thought about your piece in a totally different way from what you wrote about and this is, you know, what I did and I like this or, you know, they. Some people seem to have a good time taking contradictory journeys than those which I uh, share that I've experienced, and uh, that usually delights me. Maybe sometimes it could irk me. I don't know. Oh, I don't like that. Um, certainly, if they had an unpleasant experience, I feel bad about that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you you definitely. I, I can't even imagine what, but somebody coming up and interpreting your piece as some sort of hateful screed, and you're being like, oh, no. No, please, look at the program. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. If, if you could just direct your intention to what I think, maybe you'll have a better time of it. <laughs> I often find myself when I'm writing program notes writing something that is clearly not an explanation of of the piece or anything close to it and i don't know i guess i'm trying to have people dig into a little bit of the space between the piece and the program note and try to burrow into to what might find there and I don't know, just try to put them into the right general mindset to uh, to best enjoy the piece mm -hmm. with some degree of uh, um, mental space uh, between the program note and the piece. For sure. Yeah, and I think that that's very much like in the, the kind of tradition that Sabrina has gone in in her program note too, which is a very poetic piece of writing, and so it's kind of a jumping off point for thinking about a relationship with the piece, but that's still afford so much freedom in the way of, um, of engagement with the work that one can have. Um, so, yeah. yeah uh, stone doesn't vanish, though. It explodes. You know, uh, explosion is a strong word. It's maybe one of the strongest words. Uh, sure. It's very and this piece doesn't necessarily read as uh, an explosion. So mm -hmm. that, to me, introduces a exciting tension. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's really interesting just kind of responding to that, because um, that was a line that I didn't think about very much. Um, in that freedom of the poetry of the work, certain things catch my eye more than others, and I latch on to other things feel like suitably vague, such that I where I really have no entry point into thinking about what that could possibly mean, so I'm going to kind of glaze over it. And so that was one of those where I was like, oh, that's you know, a really beautiful image, but I'm not really going to think about that for very much longer. Now that I've been offered the chance to, I think that's really beautiful that 
it's like presenting a kind of contradiction. The immediate reaction that I have is like stones explode, you know, like that. This it makes me think about like geological time, right? So like, mm. how what what is the end of a stone? You know, it's something that exists in a such a different time span from us, and so to think of a stone as exploding rather than eroding, which is what we experience, puts my conception of a stone on a totally different uh, time scale, as if I'm maybe imagining like a millennia's length fast forward button on the life of a stone. And so that puts me into this kind of geologic time way of engaging with the work as I'm thinking about the piece now and thinking about that idea of distance, you know, um, and and that's, you know, such a beautiful thing for me that I think about a lot uh, when I listen to a concert or write music uh, for the concert stage is that kind of sense of distance and intimacy and that kind of contradiction that engages when you have this kind of like shared feeling of going to a concert hall and there's that intimacy there of having that shared connection and an intimacy of having the sound touch you but at the same time it's like clearly othered it's like you're the subject that's the object of your attention right and so um having that shared subjecthood with others really brings into relief for me that sense of distance and that relationship between the distance of the other and the proximity which then you know connects to that hug machine thing of having like that sensation being something that touches you from afar right which is again what the sound is doing as it um is something that simultaneously seems to happen far away from you and then it's also something that you have a tactile intimate relationship with and so having that geological perspective of distance and the vantage point removed which i think is also like related to the structure of the work and the droniness of things taking a long time um that's how i engage with that little citation well that that is very nice i think that's that's good i'm not even gonna add anything onto that uh but is there any other elements of this uh piece you would like to touch on before we head uh Outwards. No, I think that is pretty much it. I maybe would just round off my kind of little pontification there, or my reaction, um, by connecting it to the idea of empathy. And I think that that's a really powerful thing that comes through in my experience of this work. Um, having that idea of distance and intimacy and the hug machine, you know, it's connecting to another, you know, it's not just, there's not that distance there, there's also that intimacy. And so, connection and human connection uh, is something that just breathes forth so strongly in this work and I feel like a lot of sense of empathy of being in a room with people when I listen to concert music and it's really powerful to have that same uh, reflection uh, removed watching the work uh, as something that's on a little screen uh, where I can see the technicians in front of the audience in front of the stage and have this kind of like Hall of Mirrors step away from the sound and the people there, uh, which of course is so like an important thing in this quarantine time of COVID where we're having this experience so often of having, trying to build connection and empathy across great distances. And so I think it's a really beautiful work for these times. Yeah, it's funny, just your comments on that sort of attention towards uh, I don't know if you've ever seen me do stand-up comedy, but it's something I used to do, oh, certainly. I have, and you're so good at it. Oh, you, wait, where did you see me do stand-up? I, I can't even remember now. At the MCML, you did a show in Montreal. Oh, yes, yes, of course. I did, uh, somebody, uh, somebody, the te the, uh, somebody was having technical difficulty, and they were like, please, you must, you must perform your duty, James. <laughs> But yeah. often uh, when you do comedy, you'll do these things called open mics that are functionally uh, practice. It's basically an open rehearsal. Uh, and in this, the vast majority, sometimes the whole audience uh, you're performing for is other comedians who are going to be going up. <laughs> 
Now, this is generally considered a very sad thing, but at its best, and I would say I would particularly point to somebody named Mark Hallworth, who used to do these shows in Toronto, if everyone could come together and work with that flow of taking attention and giving attention, it could be a really beautiful thing. And sometimes in the world of contemporary music, it could feel a little cloistered. Uh, everyone in this audience is a composer. But I think in those moments where we're all willing to give our attention, take our attention, become the subject, become the object, and flow between those roles with grace, it's a it's a very beautiful thing and you know one of these things i'm i'm really looking forward to when we get out of here <laughs> just going to one of these concerts with like five other people yeah. and just being like you know what this rolls and i'm so happy that i know everyone <laughs> here and it's it's kind of it's kind of wonderful that's so beautiful really well said well Having taken the last word for myself, I guess, who cares? Uh, I'm going to turn to uh, our final segment, which I'm calling Unsound Choices. Mm. And I'm going to drop in a jingle here. Um, so, choices. Uh, this is where we talk about any art that we're enjoying right now or giving us some creative juice or just helping us get through all that good stuff. So, James, uh, what you... Uh, what you um, want about at the moment? Well, this past week I have been, uh, or past few days, voraciously devouring a novel by Haruki Murakami, and I have only one chapter left to go. So maybe even after this interview I will race toward the finish line because it's been um, such a gripping and absorbing experience in a way that I haven't uh, enjoyed uh, it, to that level in uh, literary engagement for quite some time. The novel of Haruki Murakami I'm talking about is 1Q84, um, one of his more popular ones, uh, came out I think in 2011 or 10, um, and I hadn't yet got around to reading it, having previously in had similar experiences with other Murakami novels where I was like, this is just a breeze, it's such a joy to uh, rifle through. Um, and so it's like, I think he's a writer that I go to when I'm in a rut in reading. Like, for example, I've been reading, for, I think the last decade I've been reading Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. And I love it. It's such a beautiful book. It's so smart and so interesting. Every like sentence is filled with like, aeons worth of information that, that it just sometimes it's a real slog to get through and so I put it down and I stopped thinking about it for maybe a couple of years because it just drained all my life essence through reading one page <laughs> and so I'm nearing the end of that book too but it's taken a decade but sometimes when I'm in a rut where like I can't read this pinch on book anymore I like the thing that I crave in response is Murakami <laughs> so um, I was maybe in one of those ruts where I hadn't read for a while and then thought um, this is a nice chance to kind of engage with something in that way. And so it, I've really been enjoying the, um, just the, 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 the speed and the effortlessness of reading this very fun, very interesting book. A decade. You're a, you're a changed man. You're a different person started uh, <laughs> Gravity's Rainbow that finished it. Or it may finish it, or may, may not. Who knows? You might just reach the second last page and go, you know what? Uh, why don't we give it another <laughs> few decades? Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. Just, uh, you know, incinerate that along with my body, and maybe I'll have absorbed it <laughs> in some way after I pass. Um, I. That's a little dessert for the afterlife. <laughs> uh, you have to leave something undone so your ghost can come back and finish Gravity's Rainbow. Well, for me, my, my unsound choice for this episode will be... Uh, I was sitting on my computer uh, yesterday and I asked myself, you know, when's the last time I've checked up on Cool 3D World? I don't know if you know about Cool 3D World, but it's a video... It's a bell, but... It's a, it's a sort of a video series on, on YouTube that 
takes uh, as its starting point kind of 90s PC uh, technology to create uh, hallucinatory uh, and often quite funny uh, CGI uh, uh, mm. stories, for lack like of a better word. sort of vaporwave-y kind of aesthetic? It's quite different from vaporwave in, in many ways. Some of them are... are uh, awful and i can't recommend them at all but some of them are are great they're very silly but i think if you watch enough of them you start to really get into these interesting questions of causality and and narrative and how these things are represented on screen buttons are always being pushed doors are opening people's uh, orifices, their eyes, their ears become gateways, points of exit, points of entry. And it's also endlessly interesting in the ways that the human body can be represented, especially in the world of cartoons. I think mm. this uh, guy or girl or uh, otherwise, whoever is the person who is actually making these things is, is deeply interested in the way that certain ideologies are implanted into the way that we represent humans when we radically simplify them. Um, but there's also just a bunch that are like ha-ha poop. So, you know, you're going to have to go and, and, and explore and, and see what you will see. So that's my recommendation. Cool 3D World. Uh, just check out one of their Vine compilations on YouTube and, and that'll, that'll set you down the right direction. Okay, well... Um, it has been an absolute pleasure, uh, James. I hope you're keeping well. And uh, thank you very much for contributing your thoughts and uh, uh, making me listen to this piece like six times. So there we go. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. It was nice chatting with you. And that's it for this. Thank you so much for joining us for the second episode of Unsound on Sound. Uh, we want to thank the Ontario Region of the Canadian Music Centre for supporting Unsound on Sound as part of their media production residency. You can follow the CMC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit cmccanada.org for info. You can, of course, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leave us a good review. Why don't you do that for us? Huh? And you can join our page on Facebook. Okay. Well, thank you very much, and goodbye.